0: In the midst of this study of John chapter one, Footprints of Faith, we the series. Today's message is titled Diamonds in the Rough. I want to take you back a few years. 1902 in London, Gladys Allward was born. You might recognize the name if you're a student of church history or missions. She was born into a devout family. They went to church every week with the Sunday school. And as a very young girl, Gladys went to Sunday school one Sunday and she heard a visiting missionary talk about the work of missions in China. She went home from that very day believing that God wanted her to be a missionary in China. Well, that had to be years off. She was a youngster. Things happen. Life gets tough. She had to quit school at age 14 and go to work to help support the family. Twelve more years elapsed. and at age 26, she still believed God wanted her in China. She applied to be a missionary, China Inland Mission most notable missionary around in those days. They put her into a school, and they decided her education was lacking. She struggled with being able to pick up any semblance of the Chinese language. So they said, you're just unable to learn the language you would need. So they rejected her. I didn't change Gladys's mind about where God wanted her. She went back to work being a maid and saving every possible— I was going to say penny. I don't know. What's English money? Whatever it was. She saved it. She saved up enough until she bought her own ticket on the train, the Trans-Siberian Railway, I think it was traveled all the way through Russia and to northern China. Paid paid her own money that she had saved up, third-class ticket. Very dangerous, very dangerous uh, trip. Uh, Tensions between Russia and China and Japan was involved in the area, a lot going on. and, And she was actually kidnapped for a while in the midst of that trip. When she got close to having just enough money to buy the ticket, but she didn't have quite enough, she looked down and she realized she was wearing a pair of quite well-known and expensive shoes, so she sold them. Then she went and bought a second-hand pair, kept the difference to help make the final amount she needed to buy the ticket. Oh, I said pair. They weren't really a pair. They always. Two she could find in her size were both left foot shoes. She wore two left footed shoes all the way to China. And when she left on her own, no one supported her financially. And although they were well meaning, everyone she knew in her life tried to talk her out of going no one no one could fathom god's plan for this woman's life but gladys listened and she followed amazing woman she's best known with her work among orphans in china and in particular on leading a group of over 100 might have been closer to 200 Across the mountains of northern China to safety when war broke out with Japan. Everywhere she went, she spread the gospel and won many to Christ. She learned the language in a matter of weeks once she got there and was putting it in use, by the way. After after 17 years, she returned to England. She needed to recuperate health wise mostly. While there, she began to tell her story, give her testimony, and soon someone wrote a biography of what had happened in China. And in 1958, a major motion picture was made of her life and work in China. The End of the Sixth Happiness, it was called. She literally became this woman nobody believed in, literally became the best known and perhaps the most influential missionary in the world at that time. Well, many believers never recognized their potential for service. But Gladys never doubted that God had her hand on her life. You know, it's so easy for all of us to conclude, well, I don't have any ability to do this. I don't have any ability to do that. I don't have the ability to serve here or there. Or to think I'm unqualified. Somebody else could do a better job. Peter probably felt the same way. He was an unrefined, unimpressive, seemingly insignificant fisherman. When Jesus Christ began to lay out the plan for his life. As incredible as it may seem, God sees your potential. And your potential. And all, he sees the potential in all of us. And he has a plan and a purpose. A unique plan and a purpose for each of us. Other individuals may never see it, but God always sees it. All we have to do is trust him. Follow him. Don't ever, ever short-circuit God's plans for your life by thinking that he has no use for you. Peter could have concluded that, but he didn't. I know when I say God has a plan for your life, you probably think of that track. uh, It was around for years. God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life. I remember reading that as a youngster or as a student in school and I'm thinking, I'm pretty sure God loves me, but I don't know about the wonderful plan part. I don't, I don't know what that could be for me. To give you some example about where I was at in those days, the class that I feared most and dreaded most as a freshman in college was speech. I was a nervous wreck. God does have plans, though, that he works out. God has a plan for your life. There's no doubt about it. The question is, how do we find that plan? How we how do we understand what it is? How do, how do we fulfill the plan that God has in place? There's where we have a lot of questions, right? I want to give you three things that you need to do to fulfill God's plan for your life. I didn't say they were easy. You say, three things you need to do. Oh. No, no, no. It's not that easy. (laughs) But it is important. So let's begin with number one. The first thing that we need to do is this. We need to embrace God's plan for our life, even if we do not know what it is. That's the first step. You've got to understand, you've got to embrace the idea, you've got to entertain the thought. Gladys didn't know how it would happen. She had every reason to doubt herself, like everybody else. But she wouldn't let go the desire God put in her heart. You see, God's plan for our life may be obscured especially early on by our present level of involvement in ministry or accomplishment in life. That's where Peter was. Look at John chapter 1, verse 40 and following. We read this last week. We've already covered it. But we're circling back and we're focusing on Peter this time, not Andrew. One of the two who heard John speak, that was John the Baptist, who said, this is the Lamb of God. One of the two that heard John speak and followed him was Andrew, Simon Peter's brother. He first found his own brother, Simon, and said to him, we have found the Messiah, which is translated Christ. Now, the thing we see here basically was that Peter and Andrew were brothers. We know from the other Gospels, they were also partners in a fishing business, probably along with their father. It's probably a family deal. So Peter was just a fisherman. I didn't mean that fishermen are not important. Obviously, I realize the importance of fishermen every time I have a nice... (laughs) Filet of fish. But the point was, in Peter's mind, he was just a fisherman. No doubt. He, he wasn't a rabbi. He, he, he wasn't a disciple of a rabbi. John <clears throat> tells us, John, the disciple, the apostle who wrote John, tells us that Andrew was a disciple of John the Baptist. But it doesn't say anything about Peter. Some have have, uh, surmised that Peter, too, was a disciple of John the Baptist. If he was, it wasn't in the same sense that Andrew was, it doesn't seem. So he didn't have any notoriety as far as his profession, his accomplishments, or his association with anybody. But still, God valued Peter had a plan for his life. It was very important, as we all know. So God does have a plan for our life. It doesn't matter who we are, what walk of life we come from, what we're doing right now. And by the way, what you're doing right now may be intricately a part of God's plan for your life in its fulfillment, or it could be a step to something more. We will discuss those ideas in a moment. But God does have a plan. And how do we know he has a plan for Peter? Well, again, verse 40. Actually, let's jump down to verse 42. It says in verse uh, 42 that God, or Jesus, I should say, gave Peter a name. Jesus looked at him, it says. Jesus looked at him and said, this is the first time Jesus ever laid eyes on him. Jesus looked at him, and he said, you are Simon. That's his given name. is his name his daddy and mommy gave him, I guess. Where else he'd have got it? His name was Simon. Simon, son of John. But Jesus, the first time he looks at him, says, Simon, the son of John, you shall be called Cephas. Now, that's the Aramaic word for rock. And that's why John wrote the... Explanation, which is translated Peter. Because Peter, Petros, is the Greek word for rock. And John, the apostle, is writing the Gospel of John in Greek, so he needs to make that note. But Jesus and his disciples probably routinely spoke in Aramaic. Either way, it means rock. Now, the name that Jesus chose for Peter was significant, obviously, or wouldn't have used it. Jesus gave him a name that was based on his potential rather than his present situation. He gave him a name that was prophetic. He gave him a name that referred to someone who was dependable, someone who was consistent, someone that was an accomplished leader. But Peter at this point in his life was vacillating, impulsive, undependable, you, move, you add the adjectives you want to add. And Jesus looks at him and says, you shall be called rock. You know, it, it brings to mind something that happened in the Old Testament, the book of Judges, chapter six. Gideon, who became a judge in Israel, was hiding out, threshing wheat in a wine press, which a hollowed out place in the rock in the mountains. Why? Because the Midianites would come in and take their crop every year. And and Gideon is hiding out and threshing wheat in an unlikely spot. And suddenly the angel of the Lord appears to him. And what does God say to him? The Lord is with you, O valiant lawyer. Well, he was anything but a valiant lawyer standing there, hiding out, threshing his wheat in secret. Sometimes God has a way of communicating his confidence in us and his plans for us. Now, he doesn't speak to us probably. <laughs> uh, I, I doubt very seriously if he's ever said anything directly to you. He hasn't to me. But God has other ways of speaking to us through other people. Just the leading of the Holy Spirit internally. That changed Peter's life. That statement, the first time Jesus laid his eyes on him, changed Peter's life. Now, only in one aspect. There's a lot that needed to be changed in the future in Peter's life. But it changed his perspective from someone who thought he was a nobody to somebody who thought... "Oh yeah." There's every evidence here to believe that Peter, at this point, when he said that to him, had already recognized this is the Messiah taking Andrew's word, and who knows what other all conversations went into that. And for the Messiah, the Christ, the anointed one, to say that about him, that opened all kinds of doors in his mind. So the first thing we need to do is simply this, embrace God's plan for our life, even if we don't understand it yet. So let's move on to number two. There's a second thing we need to do, and we don't find it here in John 1. But it's the only way that Peter could get to the point of being called a rock legitimately. And that second thing we need to do is this. We need to follow the path that God sets before us. Because God is a sovereign God. God. And he is intimately involved in every detail of our life, just like he was when he created us in the womb, making us who we are and giving us all the qualities of our personality and all the rest. He's at the same time intricately involved in the circumstances of our life and what happens and what influences us, who we are around and who we benefit from, all that. And he begins to set forth a path before us, he doesn't necessarily say to us, you're going to end up being a rock. But he does a similar thing that he did here for Peter. He set Peter on a path. You see, Peter's nickname conveyed something to him about God's plan. He didn't know what. And, and Jesus said that of him upon the initial meeting with Peter. In fact, verse 42 says that when Andrew brought him to Jesus, Jesus looked at him and said immediately, You are Simon, the son of John. You shall be called Cephas. God doesn't need a lot of time to contemplate things. He sees it all like that, even before that. And when God says something like that to you, to you, 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 what do you do? You know, There's nothing to do but follow. See, that's what happened to Gladys Allward in that Sunday school class when she was a child. And she was left with no other option but to follow. I don't know how God communicated it to her. I don't know how it happened. But somehow she knew. God's got a plan. She never let go of it. So God has a plan, and and we just have to simply follow. Peter could not possibly have understood the full significance of his new name at this point. But not too many days after something happened, Andrew and Peter were standing on the seashore. According to Matthew chapter 4, verses 18 and 22, they were standing on the seashore casting the net, the type of net you'd cast on the shore, not the kind you'd use in a boat. Jesus walked up. They already knew Jesus. John 1 occurs prior to Matthew 4, chronologically. So Jesus now, who already knows Andrew, Andrew has come over from being a disciple of John the Baptist, being a disciple of Christ, not in a formal sense, but in the general sense. Is there, he had many disciples who were not a part of the Twelve. That's been the case at this point. The so Twelve is not in existence. But now he's going to call Andrew and Peter to be a part of the Twelve Disciples Apostles, part of the foundation of the Church, eventually. And so he finds them casting their net, and the Scripture says... And he said to them both, follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. And then the scripture says, immediately they left their nets and followed him. God laid out a path. God said, here it is. You want to be the rock? Here's the road. Would Peter have made that step if God hadn't put that in his heart? Partly by that nickname, at least. I don't know. God has a specific plan for our lives. And it is sovereignly revealed to us. You ever play that little game? You go into, sometimes you still see them in restaurants. You go in, they have a kid's menu, and they got a thing there where the kids have to connect the dots to make a picture. That's exactly what God does in our life. He leads us from point to point to point to point to point to point. We don't have to know his plan. We just have to follow to the next dot. God has a specific plan for our life. It's sovereignly revealed. It's like connecting the dots. But eventually we see the picture. Think of Joseph. (laughs) Joseph Joseph was prepared, in a sense, from the very beginning for what God was going to do in his life because Joseph had the ability to interpret dreams. I wouldn't put too much stock in your dreams, okay? I, I find that I dream about things that I'm thinking about. And sometimes I wake up in the middle of the night and have a... A new point for my sermon. I mean, it just happens, you know. But but uh, God, God can do anything He wants, and He might, but don't, He doesn't routinely speak to us in dreams. But this is Old Testament, that we, the believers there didn't possess the Holy Spirit. Uh, it was a different day and age, dispensation, and Joseph had the ability to interpret dreams that God ha- caused people to dream to reveal information. And he used it, and it wasn't appreciated one bit by his brothers who were jealous and sold him into slavery. He was a favored son who became a slave. And then from being a slave, he went to prison because he was falsely accused. And then finally, after rising in Potiphar's house to managing all of his affairs, to rising to the guy, you know, administrating the prison, he ends up number two in the whole land of Egypt. In the end, God's plan unfolded to where he was the means of salvation for his father and his brothers the nation of Israel. Just followed the dots. Didn't have any choice. Didn't like it very well either, probably. Just followed the dots. So, how do we fulfill God's plan for our life? Well, number one, you have to embrace God's plan, even if you don't know what it is. You know, that that comes down to Romans 12, 1 and 2, doesn't it? I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies living, a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable unto the Lord. And be not conformed to this world. Don't, don't let the world's plans, the world's ideas, the world's thinking shape your ambitions in life. Be not conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, that you may, what? Prove the good and acceptable and perfect will of God. We prove out God's will more than anything else. That's the way God works. Embrace God's plan whether you know it or not. And then number two, follow the path that he sets before you. And that brings us to number three. The third thing we need to do, trust God to prepare you for what lies ahead. See, Peter not only followed the path, Peter not only stepped out on faith, Gladys Allward not only stepped out on faith, but they had to trust God to give them what they needed to function, to prepare them for what his plans were and how it would be that they could carry them out. The moment we place faith in Jesus Christ, the moment we enter into the kingdom of God, God's plan for our life begins to unfold. We're not really aware of it. But it is at that point that the Scripture tells us that the Spirit of God gifts us in particular areas of service. And I don't want to get into a long discussion of that this morning. There are various gifts, many of which are no longer operative in this day and age but several that are. So God's plan for your life might be something simple like exercising the gift of serving, ministering, or the gift of being merciful, or the gift of helping. It might be something that's more prominent like the gift of teaching. Those, are, those seem to be humble almost menial things to be doing in the body of Christ, but they're absolutely God-ordained and valuable to the whole of the body and the health of the body. And he doesn't tell us what they are. We have to follow the path. And he'll prepare us as well on on that journey. Eventually, hopefully, we all find out where we fit. Maybe you haven't even thought of it or described it in terms of gifts. Scripture says in verse 42, when Andrew brought him to Jesus, Jesus looked at him and said, you are the Simon, the son of John, and you shall be called Cephas. That's a future test. Now, he would already given him, the, given him the name, but he would ultimately earn the name. And that would require a process in which God worked on his character. You know, every believer comes to Christ as a diamond in the rough, so to speak. You know, diamonds don't look very pretty when they're found, mined, or whatever. I probably wouldn't even recognise one. But those who recognize what a diamond is in the rough know and see its value ahead of time. And to actually obtain that value, that diamond has to be cut. But before it can be cut by experts using specialized tools, the person cutting the diamond has to plan how that diamond should be cut to make it the most valuable that it can be made. You know, I checked out a site on the web, wpdiamonds.com. <clears throat> my researcher clued me into it. That's my wife. I went there and I found out that the most expensive diamond in the world. I can't pronounce the name or I would tell you. I don't know what language it is. is. I see the English transliteration doesn't do me any good. <laughs> But the most expensive diamond in the world, you want to take a guess? You want to take a guess how many million it's worth? You'd be wrong because it's worth more than a million. It's worth more than a hundred billion. It's worth more than a billion. It's worth over two billion dollars. Because it was found, the potential was seen, the plans were made, to make it its most valuable, and that's what turned out. Now, here's the thing. We, as God's children, as part of the body of Christ, are far more valuable than $2 billion. Think about it. Diamonds are pretty cool. Some 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 variation of a diamond's gonna be used in that New Jerusalem, right? But what's really important there is who occupies it, who lives there. We are worth more than two billion dollars to God. You can't put a value on our worth to God. He values us so importantly that Jesus Christ died for us. Wow. And perfecting human beings is infinitely more difficult than cutting a diamond. It requires infinitely more skill, knowledge, and power. But it's something God can do. It's not only something he can do. It's something only God can do. The only hitch in the work, the only problem with all that, is we allow him to do that work on us, not rebel against it. Rejoice when you fall into various trials. James says, "Why? Because he's trying to chip away some things that shouldn't be there in our life through those trials." If we have that kind of value to God, then His plans for our life surely. It's what gives us that value, and what he does in our life, is, and, and how he molds us and shapes us, is, is how we obtain the purpose that he has for us. That's what gives us value. But you see, it wasn't until Peter's ultimate failure that he became the rock. Now, listen, Peter gets a bum rap. I mean, Peter gets a bum rap from a lot of Bible teachers. I talk about oh, Peter had the, uh, you know, the proverbial put your foot in your mouth problem. Every time he opened his mouth, he was, you know, he was off base. And much is made of Peter's failures and, and, and such. And, and that's legitimate. But think about it for a minute. Peter walked on water before he sank. Nobody else got out of the boat. It was only Peter who confessed, Thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God, right before he rebuked Jesus for talking about his death. But nobody else spoke up. It was Peter who drew his sword into the garden and was willing to defend to the death of the Lord Jesus Christ when nobody else did. Yeah, he drew his sword and Jesus had to tell him to put it away. Okay, but... But he had some good qualities. He was brave. He was strong. He was proactive. Had all the things he needed to be a great leader. He even claimed he would never forsake Jesus. All the rest might forsake you, but I will never forsake you. Right before he denied him three times. You know what I'm describing? I'm describing my life and your life, okay? Right? We're just... Here or we're there, we're up or we're down. Inconsistent. And no matter how long we live, there'll still remain some inconsistencies that I, I thank God, I'm at least I'm not near as inconsistent as I used to be. So Peter, after he denied Jesus, he, he gave up. He, he basically quit the ministry. He went back to fishing. And Jesus had to find him along the seashore and ask him three times, Peter, do you love me? And every time Jesus, he, he, Peter would. Not really say, I love you with the utmost love, agape love. He always used a lower term. Why? Because he learned not to be prideful. He learned to be humble. And he realized, he claimed he would not do what everybody else would do. And he did the same thing. And God had chipped away and chipped away, not only for those three years, but especially in that last week. So much of what brought Peter to the point where he was no longer a diamond in the rough, but a real rock. So, life, life as a believer, it's kind of like an experience I had been a long time ago. My daughter, Brittany, was probably in junior high and my brother-in-law and I took Brittany and Brittany's cousin to a maze on Myrtle Beach, Myrtle Beach, South Carolina. It was, it was a day we'd drive down, it wasn't far from where we live. And we'd been there many times, and we always saw the advertisement and saw the maze. But finally, we said, we're just going to go, go through that maze. It stood outside. And uh, so we go up, and we buy our tickets. And it was like, you know, if you can get through this maze in 20 minutes or something like that, you get a free ticket to go back, or there's some reward. And we like, oh, it doesn't look that difficult. we we're surely, you know, so we buy our tickets, we go into maze. But well, we're in there wandering around, and pretty soon, Brittany and I got lost from Earl and Ashley. We didn't know where they went, what turn they take. We were by ourselves. And, and no matter where we went, we always ended up back where we started. We never made any progress. It was, soon getting, it was soon getting depressing. I mean, it was 95 degrees in the shade, and nobody had water bottles that carried around in those days, and so we were getting thirsty. And I, I finally got to the point, I said, doggone that, Earl is finally getting back to me up, up for the- I put the, you know, the exploding golf ball in his tee or whatever it was, you know, I say, that's, I know what he's done. He's got ahead of us, and he, you know, they had doors in there that they had bolted shut. You weren't supposed to go through. He he has made an adjustment ahead of us to the doors, and he's sitting back there having the babes laughing himself silly. We continue. We just couldn't get, we could not make any progress. I mean, I think an hour went by, over an hour, and we're like, yeah, something's wrong. Uh, they, they, you know, Earl's either pulling a trick or they made a mistake today. We can't get out of here. By the way, when we finally got out, Earl and Ashley were still inside. So it wasn't them. You know how we got out? Well, the first thing I had this epiphany, I said, Hansel and Gretel. They gave us these tickets. I just pull them off and every time we go somewhere, i drop it. At least, I, at least I'll know when we're going the wrong way, or we come back. You know, may well I did that for a few feet, and I looked down. and I thought I only dropped two or three. There's like 25 pieces of paper there. So apparently, that process has been tried by a lot of other people. <laughs> you know, what? the only way like, we ever got out of there is we finally got far enough away, and we looked over the top of the barrier, and they had this platform up there where they sold the tickets, so people go up the steps, and look down and watch people in the maze. And we were like, help! <laughs> and they finally, it took a while, but they finally directed us the right way to get out. A life is like that. <laughs> we're literally amazed. What does, what does Proverbs 3, 5, and 6 say? You all know it, right? If not, look it up or write it down and look at it later. Proverbs 3, 5, and 6. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. And do not lean to your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge Him, and He will make your path straight. The Hebrew literally says He will smooth out your path. He'll take the obstacles out. It doesn't say He'll tell you what the path is or how to get there. He'll smooth out the right path to put you where He wants you. So God in our life is much like those people we looked at standing up there in the balcony, so to speak. And when we get stuck and we're all out of answers and we turn to God, somehow, sovereignly, God will direct us on the path. It's the only way we make any progress. But this whole process, which I think the Bible calls living by faith, This whole process sometimes bewilders us and it makes us think God's kind of lost us and we're wandering around amazing. He doesn't know where we're at and we don't have any capability of making anything work. But that's not true. So let me give you an action plan. This is an action plan for your life. By the way, it's just a variation of the three points so far. But you might want to write this down, and especially the verses that go with it. Embrace God's plan for your life, even if you don't know what it is, number one. Romans 12, 1 and 2. Number two, follow the path that God sets before you. Add, add Hebrews eleven six 6 to that. Then finally, trust God to prepare you for what lies ahead. Oh I didn't that that, I thought i reworded it, but that is. that those are the three points, right? That's the action plan. That's how you begin to find your way. Don't worry, you're not the only one that's lost. And those that are pretty much pretty much confident that they're where they should be, oftentimes God just opens another path and it gets confusing again. But it's the process. It's God's process. It's God that knows what he's doing. It's God that's perfect in his doing. We have to be perfect in our following.